0: Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answers. I'm your host, Dr. Oneet Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, we will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. To grow this community of information and action, I hope you give us a five-star review. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show and download a free prescription for naloxone. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isic1.org. That's I-A-S-I-C-1.org. Use their friendly medical library that translates medical journals for public understanding Listen to their free speaker series and follow the science on marijuana. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a potent conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Potent as in highly potent THC the active ingredient, psychoactive effect in marijuana or cannabis. Back in the good old hippie days of marijuana and cannabis, a one gram joint had 50 milligrams of THC. Today's one gram joint has four times that or 200 milligrams. Vapes, shatters, dabs, much, much more. Eight grams at 80% of THC would be equivalent to sixty four hundred milligrams of THC or a hundred and twenty eight nineteen nineties. Good old joints. Not all weed is created equal. There is a hundredfold magnitude difference between smoked pot and the vapes shatters and dabs and waxes. The clinical effects of high potency THC is not being chill or mellow or needing the munchies, wanting to eat High-potency THC causes major stimulation with clinical effects like methamphetamine. People are amped up. Americans voted to legalize marijuana, but they had no clue that the industry would run with little regulation and create now genetically engineered products and synthetic products that have never been tested before, not on rats or on primates or on humans, and the consequences have been serious, serious to individuals, as well as public health. People have the right to be informed, to have informed decision-making about cannabis or any other drug or device or activity. And sadly, cannabis is being promoted as safe and natural and healthy while hiding the serious medical and mental health consequences. And with that, let's hear our question of the day.
1: Hello, Dr. Love. Thank you for what you do to raise awareness at every opportunity of the dangers of high potency THC products. My name is Matthew and my wife and I have a teenage son who recently was diagnosed with cannabis use disorder as well as bipolar 1 disorder with psychotic features. We are convinced that he would not have these diagnoses if he was never exposed to cannabis, in particular high potency THC vape cartridges. My question is about dual diagnostic treatment of cannabis use disorder and cannabis-induced psychosis. What is the treatment, and is there hope for people like our son who suffer?
0: Matthew, my heart goes out to you and your wife and your son who suffer a terrible disease, dual disease of substance use disorder, cannabis use disorder, as well as mental health effects. And could that have been all prevented without exposure uh, to a psychostimulant, perhaps, but you can't think like that. You need hope for your son today. And so I think there is hope. There is treatment um, to both the mental health um, condition as well as the substance use disorder condition. Um, So I think that there needs to be hope and there is treatment. And perhaps you're asking, what can you do? As I hear so Many parents say that other families don't suffer like we are right now. What can, what can be done to prevent um, what's happening to your son? And I think there is hope and treatment for that as well. Um, to answer your question, I have Dr. Margaret Haney, who's a professor in neurobiology and psychiatry at the Columbia University Medical Center, where she is the director of Cannabis Research Laboratory and co-director of the Substance Use Research Center While she is not a clinician, she can give us a lot of hope as far as the research that is being done today and will affect the future. To learn more about Dr. Margaret Haney, check out the High Truths show notes. Dr. Margaret Haney, welcome to High Truths.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be
0: here. I'm excited to have you, too. You are a scientist, a neurobiologist who knows the brain, knows how drugs affect the brain. And uh, I want our audience to get to know you a little bit. Uh, why did you become a neurobiologist? And from that, how did you focus on, of all the things uh, the brain does, on cannabis?
1: Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I didn't land on cannabis until, until the early nineties. I, I really, um, have always been interested in the biological basis of behavior. And my graduate work was actually preclinical and really interested in looking at the biological basis of aggressive behavior and the effects of drugs on that. So looking at mice, rats, and monkeys. And I, you know, addiction has always been, you know, personally important to me, certainly the alcohol use disorders in my family. So I've always have, have had a deep personal interest in that. So in, in my postdoc and then, um, I felt, fo- I focused more on preclinical models of abuse related addic- addictive, uh, behaviors. So, uh, this was cocaine was, was my primary focus there. And then for my faculty position, I switched species. So I moved to, from a preclinical rats, mice, and monkeys researcher to humans because um, at Columbia, we have this amazing laboratory who was developed by preclinical researchers to study drug effects in humans in a really careful, systematic way, like we do with preclinical studies, but moving this to humans and really trying to understand the the behaviors around drug taking in particular. And so we use this model of self-administration, which is having people actually respond to take their drug of abuse. So what's unique about our lab is we have people in the lab, and again, very carefully controlled conditions, take our drug of interest, and mine have been cocaine and um, cannabis. Um, so, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that, but the way I stumbled into cannabis, and it was it was really a, uh, just following one's kind of passion, there was this study in, in rats in the early 90s showing that you could precipitate THC withdrawal, so that means you could give uh, antagonist, a drug that blocks the cannabinoid receptor, and animals would go, and they had been taking THC, animals would go into this withdrawal, and at the time, it really rocked us. We didn't know that you could see such a, a, a withdrawal syndrome from THC. What, what, do, what does it
0: look like when rats withdraw from
1: you know, they shake, of- they have uh, droopy eyelids, they, you know, they, they go through behaviors that, that in some ways resemble opioid withdrawal. And, and of course, precipitated withdrawal is different from abstinence related withdrawal. It's often more dramatic. So an opioid user given, you know, naloxone, it's a, it's a very quick onset, as you know very well, um, state of withdrawal. And so that we didn't know that that happened with, with animals. So my mentor at the time, Marion Fishman said, we should really study this because we have the laboratory that could really characterize cannabis withdrawal. So let and so I raised my hand and said, I'll do it, and it changed the entire course of my career. And then became, you know, there's so many questions to ask with cannabis. So what we did was just enroll daily heavy cannabis smokers into the lab and they live with us four at a time. They live in this lab with four, four bedrooms. We have them smoke cannabis in a carefully controlled way, and then we switch their active cannabis to placebo cannabis. And over, you know, the course of a week, we could document, you know, all the effects that happen when a daily smoker switches to placebo. And, you know, it's time dependent, so we can track each withdrawal symptom and see when each symptom peaks. And then we could also give very low doses of THC and completely ameliorate the withdrawal. So we know that it's pharmacologically specific. Um, So, so this, this early work in the nineties, again, really set the course for the rest of my career because we have this withdrawal syndrome that we, you know, can replicate over and over and many others have as well. So that, but, but at the time it was really just following this rat study. And, and, um, you know, as I said, it just changed the course of my whole career.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And from all your work, you recently got a, an award uh, for cannabis research, so I want to say congratulations.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I'm very, very happy about
0: Yeah, you. for really uh, – uh, it's not just your achievements, but also the achievements you will be uh, doing in the future as well. Uh, and But the lab sounds fascinating. He is. Um, yeah. Can you give us a description? Uh, how do you yeah. select the people? Do they bring their own – Stash to the lab or how
1: does that Uh, work no absolutely not so um so yeah it's it's this lab was set up um as i said there's four bedrooms and like a recreational area and there's cameras and microphones throughout so we don't want so we are basically observing for the most part and communicating through the computer with our participants because we don't want our interpersonal interaction to affect any of our outcome measures because a lot of what we're measuring is mood, sleep. We get detailed information about food intake, cognitive performance. So we're measuring their behavior around the clock and we want to kind of reduce any any impact of our, you know, the different research assistants and so forth. So, wow, so there,
0: sounds like it's humans in a cage instead of mice. In a
1: you know, it's, uh, it's like there would be an MTV show, I think, about, you know, just observing people like the real world or something, but observing people without inter- interfering too much. But so it's four of them at a time living in this environment. And, and, and who,
0: and who are they? Who volunteers yeah. for such a job?
1: Yeah. So they are non treatment seeking, daily heavy cannabis smokers. So they're wake and bake. They, they, they're average. On average, it's between two to four grams a day. They do not miss a day, and there's many, many available to. And they're just
0: smokers, not vapors or edibles right. or shatters yeah. or dabs.
1: Exactly. So I know in California, I you know our participants are they're It's it's pretty interesting. They're all smokers. Um, very little dabs. You know, on occasion, that's expensive. So they there's not a ton of dab use very few vape it's just it's smoking uh it's often blunts you know so in a cigar wrapper um that that's kind of coming on through the years there's different fashions with that but it's it's really the plant they're smoking the plant um it's mostly recreational they're not getting it from a dispensary you know um they're getting it on on the street and um and as i said they don't miss a day and they've been typically using for about 7 7 years or so maybe longer they're in their early 30s so they're living in the lab with us. We're paying them to live in the lab with us. But, um, you know, and it can be, its you know, we've gone as long as two weeks living in the lab. So it's, you know, it's a very controlled environment. We do a lot ahead of time to be sure that they understand that's fully informed consent. They understand that this is hard. You know, they're going to be... Uh, away from home and, and so forth living in the lab and they're smart. are
0: these people who have homes they're not some people oh, yeah, who are
1: yeah okay. they are Well, absolutely we don't we typically prefer to not uh, enroll the unhoused because there's going to be behaviors related to that mm-hmm. you know we want to try to keep it as as specific to cannabis so they they definitely have homes and the really interesting thing is they don't use other drugs so you know we do a lot of of course urine tox and so forth and, and their alcohol use in particular is extremely low. I feel like it's lower than the average person. Um, so they are pretty pure cannabis smokers and they, um, they do, you know, historically they have smoked cigarettes more, you know, more than non, non drug users, but that has really ebbed with, you know, with all the, the strictures on, on, on tobacco smoking. So, you, you know, I'm really interested in the interaction between tobacco and cannabis. That's kind of a separate line of research. But mm-hmm. um, over the years, it's been harder to find people who smoke both. So, so you know, they if, if they're going to be using any other drug, the, the participants we're enrolling are may may smoke tobacco cigarettes, but that's that's about it. It's really just cannabis, cannabis, cannabis is what they yeah and it. yeah. Um,
0: now, when they so, come to the lab, they switch their product, right?
1: Yeah. So that's the other really interesting thing about cannabis, because I'm sure you know that those of us who are federally federally funded to study cannabis get our cannabis from the um, from the farm. I think you interviewed Dr. El Soli. We
0: did. That was a great interview. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it's fantastic. And um, so for the past thirty years, we've been studying nida cannabis, but and I get a lot of heat about that because it is less potent than free cannabis. However, potency is not dose. If you give enough. Product, our participants who are heavy, heavy smokers are 100% fine. They're rating out of a, out of a scale from zero to 100, how, what a good effect they're getting, how much they like it. They're up to 85 typically. So I give them a decent amount of, of nitocannabis and they get a good effect from it.
0: So let me ask you, are they, are they using more often in order to get that dose that they need compared to what they did before?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't let them choose, you know, well, I, I do on, on certain occasions, but, um, you know, when I'm really looking at the effects of cannabis, I'll give them, say, several cigarettes to smoke to sometimes two, like my last study, it was two cannabis cigarettes, 800 milligrams each, about 7% THC. And they would smoke and I time how they smoke. So they inhale for five seconds, hold for 10. Exhale and I repeat that. So it's a, it's a paste. It's called the paste puffing. So if you're, I'm attempting to control between participants how much they're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they get, I get, I know they're smoking 70% of two cigarettes. And, and with that, this participant, this, this patient population gets a good effect and, and it's very reliable and it's, there's not a lot of variability. So, you know, I just, are, I pushed back a little bit about the uh, the people who say there is no value in in Nita cannabis because again I'm dealing with your heaviest you know some pretty heavy smokers and mm-hmm. they are fine and they don't go through withdrawal for example that's
0: what that's the thing is that okay. do they go through withdrawal because they're going down on, on the dose no well, because the,
1: you know again you don't need to match what they were smoking on the outside your withdrawal is going to occur when it's really low you know what I mean so it's like if you're a three cup a day, a coffee drinker and you know you only have one cup one day you're not going to go into cannab- into caffeine withdrawal you don't have to match what is typical um for the withdrawal that's good. That, that's, that's good that's good to know topic. but my point being that we can we can get to where we need to go with, with night cannabis even though it is less potent we okay just give a lot We give more than they would smoke on the outside because okay. it's less potent yeah
0: um, yeah interesting. And then um and then what withdrawal? And then so they they're smoking this for what uh a week and then you you then you switch them out?
1: You know, it depends on the particular study, but in the early withdrawal studies, I think I would have like 2 days of them smoking repeatedly throughout the day our cannabis just to kind of get everybody on the same page with mm-hmm. um with their recent exposure and then switch to placebo cannabis and you know, because THC has a long half-life. It's not it's not like tobacco cigarettes where if you're a daily smoker and you go in an hour and a half without a cigarette, uh, you might start going through withdrawal because the nicotine clears out so quickly. But with cannabis, it does stick around. So we don't really start to see much withdrawal until about 24 hours of abstinence or, you know, at least 16 hours. Mm-hmm. And then the first thing you see is appetite's gone. They don't eat. So like the first two days of no cannabis, no active cannabis, you know, you're almost begging them to eat something because they're at, but they they can go down to like, you know, from, you know, 2,800 calories a day to about 900 calories a day. They just really stop eating for those first two days that, and then that recovers fairly quickly, but sleep is really disrupted and that's disrupt, it's disrupted early on and it stays disruptive for quite a while. So sleep is a really, really robust cannabis withdrawal uh, symptom. And that's, as we all know, that's so uncomfortable when you're not sleeping well. They have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep. They wake up early, and so that's uncomfortable. And then there's mood symptoms. That takes a couple days to kick in, but that's you know they're really irritable and restless and anxious.
0: Anxious, and, okay, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you know, but irritable, I would say. You know, for my, top, that's that's perhaps top of the list. That's the one that comes. That comes on hard, uh, even more than anxious, it's pretty interesting because I know many are using cannabis for anxiety, um, and we rule out anybody with an anxiety use disorder an anxiety disorder rather, but um
0: see that that's that's my point when I hear people, well they people need it to use anxiety, and I'm thinking they're masking their withdrawal symptoms, they're anxious because they're withdrawal, and so they need to use. Not, oh, and,
1: and I think that's really true with sleep too, because many people say oh, I can't sleep unless I have it. It's like that's right. Because
0: that's because <laughs> that's, of that's yeah.
1: because we're using it, you know. And as, so, as, and, and ultimately, I don't think there's any evidence that cannabis is good in the long term for anxiety, sleep, depression, and these are primary reasons many people are seeking cannabis, you know, therapeutically. They think it's going to help with those, you know, acutely. Some, you know, I think there's there 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 uh, certainly my Participant group, I mean, they, when I ask, why do you smoke? The first thing they say is, it takes all my problems away, it takes my stress away. It's, it's, it's a, it's an enormous bomb for them. Um, and, uh, so there is acutely for some an anxiolytic kind of effect, but, um, again, an I escape, but, program. but
0: it's not, it's more of an escape instead of anxiol, right? I just, think, I think it
1: might reduce their anxiety. Okay. And, but, so does just, so does smoking cigarettes, right? And so does a glass of wine. But who's telling us to drink for for a you know, long term <laughs> every day? <life>? You know, <laughs> the effects, you know, certainly at the end of a terrible day, a glass of wine feels great to me. I know that's not going to cure my problems wow. at all, and I kind of think the same is true for cannabis. There's no evidence it's going to help you long term, even though you might feel oh, some might feel better uh, immediately, but. You know, I always push back when people kind of describe cannabis as, you know, an anxiolytic to some degree because, um, many have the opposite effect, obviously. There is really, uh, you know, interperson variability in that effect. You know, I'm sure you're aware of like panic as being one of the primary reasons people show up at the yeah, ER. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 911 and they can't get rid of it. Yeah. It's terrible.
1: Because they're smoking more than they're used to and they, they have a panic. So, so it's not. I know it's dose related, but I also think that there are and there's interesting potential genetic uh, potential uh, contributions to that. That some people just get an anxiogenic effect from cannabis, uh, and and they're the ones that don't go on to use it daily. You know, they're yeah. the ones that are they like they quit don't like it. it. No.
0: Um, headache. Do you see that as a part of withdrawal? Sometimes. Sometimes
1: it's not a robust one, but there's certain individuals who get that. I don't see that. If
0: I, if a, so if the top three, and this is so useful for me because I tell my patients with like cannabis hyperemesis syndrome who, yes. you know, when they need to stop that, I say, you will, they all, they don't, none of them think that they're addicted, but I say, uh, instead, yeah. I say, just so you know, you may experience anxiety trouble with sleep. And I've mentioned headaches, but maybe I should switch that one out to something different.
1: No, it's it's just certain people do, but it's really, you know, I would emphasize sleep will be disrupted. And, And the thing is like by seven to 10 days, most of these symptoms remit. There is some suggestion that the, um, Kind of the nightmares and, and intense dreaming, that one seems to last for quite a long time. Okay. That's really interesting. I think THC suppresses REM, and then when you take it away, there's this rebound. And so, like, just dreaming seems to last a really long time, but most other symptoms remit. But I think it is a really important thing for you to tell uh, patients because yeah. many aren't aware. Now, my again, my participants, in, when I first started doing this research, I got such resistance From them, and they would all say, I'm not a heroin addict. Why are you asking me about, you know, any of these things? And then when I would have them, they would so clearly be going through withdrawal, but they would never ever relate it to their cannabis Right, cannabis.
0: they don't. So I just say, yeah. hey, this may happen, yeah. just so they're right. aware, because they, they're in denial it'll happen. So they, they
1: resist. Yeah, they would blame, like, I, I have to leave because my pillow's uncomfortable, and, or I'm quitting the study because, you know, they would... But now that's really changed with the acceptance of cannabis in our society. Now they're much more open to saying... If I stop smoking, my wife will leave me because I'm so awful for those, you know, for that initial week. And they're, they're, they come in very much knowing that they're hard to be around and, um, they isolate often. They say, I just know I can't be around people because I'm so irritable. Yeah.
0: And I usually tell people about two weeks and then you should feel better. Is that, yeah. is that about right? That's
1: definitely safe. I, you know, seven to 10 days, I say most symptoms will be gone. And, um, and, you know, yeah, that, that irritability that, you know, they're really uncomfortable. I think, I think these are common to almost every drug withdrawal is that kind of anxiety, irritability feeling. Um, and that's hard for them to live with as well. Um, but just to know with time, it will pass. It will pass.
0: Interesting. So, so you're, you're watching these people for, for two weeks. What, um, what's your takeaway from watching this experience?
1: You know, we're watching but we're also, you know, we're collecting data. So we're yeah. filling mood questionnaires and, and so forth. And um I gotta say these studies are hard to do. They're hard on all of us because you know, making people uncomfortable like this is not an easy day job at all. And um uh so it I can say with every fiber in my being that cannabis withdrawal is real. It's it's real and it's it's uncomfortable. And, you know, again, I, I do a decent amount of media and and many, when they hear withdrawal, they think it has to be, you know, what they've seen with heroin withdrawal mm-hmm. or, you know, they, it has to be these very violent kind of, With heroin, opioid withdrawal isn't that violent actually, but, you know, in many people's minds, it has to be these these intense physical symptoms, but You know, what I always say is, again, look at a cigarette smoker.
0: That's what I said. I said I compare it to cigarettes or coffee withdrawal. Is that fair?
1: Well, coffee, I think, might even not be as robust. as uh, Cigarettes is a pretty good... Because everyone understands that you don't have to be vomiting or having diarrhea to really be suffering. And I think the irritability and anxiety are... Are worse than, and I think opioid users would say the same. It's not the flu-like symptoms that are horrible; it's what's going on—the anxiety in their, what's going on in their right. mind—that's that's the most uncomfortable for them. The craving and anxiety. And do, so
0: do you that's, that's do awesome. you watching these people going through this? You know, like you know, day to day with cameras all around. Do you yeah. wish that there was like a, a medication to treat withdrawal for temporary, kind of like we have for alcohol? Yeah.
1: You know that's been the focus of my research for for about twenty five years, yeah. so I've been funded by NIDA to look for medications that might help with cannabis use disorder in general because I really have this model of cannabis use disorder where they're going through withdrawal, and then I have them so this self so then I have a model of what I call relapse is is one of the models we have. so after they go through this period of abstinence, I then offer them the opportunity to self administer cannabis and that means purchasing using their real money individual puffs of cannabis and so we've tested a lot of medications to see if we can shift that behavior so you because that's the behavior we think has the most important signal to then move a medication further along the the pathway so if i can take a daily non-treatment seeking cannabis smoker and with a medication decrease the likelihood that they're going to spend their own money on cannabis i think that that's going to be a meaningful signal so we've tested over a dozen medications maintained people on a variety of different medications to see what 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 we look at and so we can see some attenuation of withdrawal depending on the medication but unless i see a change in that behavior the, the actual drug taking mm. i don't get excited and so we have seen a handful of medications that can ameliorate withdrawal and decrease drug taking. And then I have a clinician colleague who treats cannabis use disorder. And then many of our medications can then, if they have a good signal, move into the clinic. And so, um, so that's been, you know, one model. We have this relapse model, but what's really interesting about cannabis, unlike other drugs of abuse, is that because the consequences of cannabis use disorder aren't as dramatic or, you know, horrifying as as alcohol or opioids or cocaine or methamphetamine you know people's lives they're distressed by their own cannabis use but their lives aren't destroyed by it so they come to treatment many many are coming to treatment on their own volitions because they've lost control of it
0: but uh, but um but meg i think maybe the patients that you're seeing have a are are biased because they're able to come to you and 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 they have a home and all that but but I, I don't know if I would say that alcohol is better than cannabis because you don't have that acute psychosis and terrible mental health things immediately with alcohol like you do with cannabis.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you would speak to that better better than I do. Okay. But, you know, Kurt, certainly if you you're looking at cannabis users overall, I think you're okay. seeing – you're seeing a subset as well. Yeah. You know, we all are, are, have a bias sample.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Seeing the extreme. I am seeing one group who are non-treatment thinking, they they smoke three grams a day, but they're not distressed by it. So they they actually wouldn't really meet cannabis use disorder criteria for many reasons because mm-hmm. they're not upset mm-hmm. about their own use. My colleague in the clinic looked, you know, treating patients coming to seek help for their cannabis use disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, they're typically working and they, but they've lost control of their own use of cannabis. So they can't, and, and everyone's a little surprised by that because it's cannabis. So they think, all right, I'll just quit when I want to. But they, when, when, once they reach that stage, they actually can't quit. Their right. relapse rate are as high as every other drug. So, okay. so, so, you know, this is Frances Levin, uh, you know, she's an addiction psychiatrist as well. And she she's done more studies than anybody else looking for medications to help people, you know, who
0: want to quit.
1: Exactly. Okay. Exactly, and it's by their own volition because, okay. of course, youth are often mandated to treatment. But there's, you know, there's no shortage shortage of adults who are looking to to stop their cannabis use. But what is unique about cannabis relative to cocaine or opioids is that I would, you know, many are not coming in to quit. They're not trying to stop. They're trying to regain control. So maybe go from a seven day a week all day smoker. To twice a week, you know, regain control of their use. So it's it's different from you know I, probably most patients for cocaine, for example. You know, when when lives have been really devastated and um, they're they're really looking to stop entirely. Not everybody, but 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 with cannabis, it's a little bit different. So many are just looking to regain control. So we really have to almost adapt our clinical trial design to reflect what they want. What be,
0: about yeah. people who have, like, I'm thinking cannabis hyperemesis syndrome?
1: Right, right. Or
0: yeah, I won't yeah. even take the cannabis-induced psychosis, but I'd say that the patient with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, they are suffering, uh-huh. um, and uh, some have even died.
1: Oh, really?
0: At, yeah, yeah, there's at least three reported deaths, um, and... How how do first of all I have, I have to convince them that they that that the, that the yes. problem is related to their cannabis and I'm actually getting better at that I used to yeah. fail completely but now I think I've, I've changed my approach and I get people to l- listen and kind of see that and yeah. then then it's really hard for them to stop like what do they
1: do it, and it's, it's incredibly hard for them to stop and um and that seems to be the only solution like there's no there's no you have to stop entirely and you can't dabble, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like others. So, so for that disorder, it seems like the only solution is to stop and, um, um,
0: and then treat the symptoms of withdrawal.
1: Yeah. And so again, that's been the focus of, uh, I've tried a lot of different approaches mm-hmm. trying to focus on sleep, for example, thinking, well, if I can help improve sleep, so like, as yeah. a is a perfect example, okay. we use that. And boy, did they sleep well and during their abstinence, and did they eat us out of house and home. But it didn't, that wasn't sufficient. Just treating sleep wasn't sufficient okay. to, to reduce the use. But again, I, I'm asking a different question than you are. You, yeah. you could go and just treat different aspects of, of the withdrawal syndrome. We've tried mood stabilizers, they haven't worked very well. We've tried, um, you know, potentially, you know, there's been some attempt at benzodiazepines, but that's also scary because you... you
0: Now you've made a worse problem, right?
1: I know. Yeah, you don't want to switch that that disorder, but, you know, just temporarily get them through the first few days, perhaps. But, um, you know, the only... The things that work the best, obviously, are are oral uh, cannabinoids. And again, you're giving it doses that are low, so they're not getting intoxicated, and they have a very long half-life, so they're... they're, it's really all their withdrawal symptoms go away, but obviously for hyperemesis that would not be a solution, you know. But um, that in the lab and in in the clinic, we certainly can attenuate withdrawal very. But
0: maybe maybe a taper of that would be.
1: Yeah. Um, again, the, the hyperemesis is is. is I don't know if they've really nailed down the mechanism of that. It's really. I,
0: I, I, I don't know if it has. You would know this way better than I do, but the correlation I have is with the opioid epidemic when we were seeing people with, um, hyperalgesia syndrome and they were yeah. on like, you know, 250 morphine equivalents yeah. a day for many years. Uh, you know, the drug wasn't dis- designed for that. It was designed for end of life care, not for people to live through. <laughs> exactly. uh, um, and then, isn't effective? I think right. And really then funny. I think the, the pathophysiology for the hyper um, algesia syndrome yeah. was uh, erratic behavior of the neuropathways because they're so inundated by opioids. So I, I, I think that, that for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, it's the same thing. It's not the occasional user who uses that, even you know, five years, it, it's not enough. As people who are using heavily for a long time, and I feel yeah. like that mechanism may be the same. I don't know what does that make no, sense think, to you?
1: You know, I think that I, I like like hyperalgesia, because we're we're getting into the pain story as well in the lab, and and really some interesting things to bring up there. But um, you know, you're clearly disrupting your own endocannabinoid system with daily cannabis use, and I think that. Uh, and the same with opioids, right, that you mm-hmm. completely suppressed your own and endogenous opioid system. And then so then when there's no opiate on board or even when there still is, there's been such adaptations that that there is this hyperalgesia. But, you know, just along that topic, we have some suggestions. And, and my colleague, Carolina Root, is really pursuing this, that daily cannabis smokers also may, it appears, during that a- abrupt abstinence phase also have hyperalgesia and it does make biological sense in in, Mm. in that they've been suppressing their own endocannabinoid system which is involved in certainly involved in pain and mood and all sorts of things and then when there's just no exogenous you know cannabinoid on board and the endogenous is suppressed it does look like there is enhanced pain sensitivity and anesthesiologists throughout the country are kind of making this uh, observation anecdotally. I
0: see that in the emergency department. Um, I, I didn't say it so eloquently like you have, but I I see patients who come in, whatever you break your arm. It it hurts. Okay. But people who are regular cannabis use it, it hurts them more. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. So, um, and, and no anesthesiologists say that they have to they have to give more drug
0: right and and there's actually even now a recommendation um from the regional anesthesiology uh-huh. society to to screen universally screen anybody going for surgery yes. because if they're a regular cannabis user like that, they'll need more propofol you
1: know? it's amazing, right like so we're, yeah the, the fact that they need more propofol and and one colleague at uh, at Columbia says he has to for some patients he has to actually just and he has to give them medication before even entering the OR because their anxiety is through the roof in a way that's, and again, right. because they're going through a bit of withdrawal. So right. You know, he is giving them as benzodiazepines before.
0: And, he's and the, 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 s- the sad part, I think, is that so many people believe they need to use cannabis for pain. And yet it's causing the opposite effect if they're injured or if you're even going into surgery we would say, you know, before you go get your knee replaced, if it's an elective surgery, you want to go down on your opioid need. Right. Um So then after surgery, the opioids will work for you. Yes. And I would say the same thing with cannabis. If you're going in for an elective surgery especially, you'd want to and I, we're not doing that as a medical community, but I feel like that's where we need to be, is go down on your cannabis use so that opioid medicines and your pain relief will be better. And instead, what Americans are hearing, oh, this is good for pain.
1: Yeah. And But to, to be fair, you know, the, the Institute of Medicine did do a, a very uh, you know, comprehensive look at what the data is for potential therapeutic use. Of cannabis. And of course, there is so little data because of all the regulatory problems of trying to study this drug and many other problems. But what, the one thing you can hang your hat on for which there is decent evidence is an analgesic effect. So, But I
0: see- think, but isn't that data from the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, um, for neuropathic pain? It's not like you banged your hand on a hammer pain and now it may help.
1: No, it. I mean, there's not a lot I guess that's going to work for that. But in the lab, we have a model of pain in healthy, you know, it's called the cold presser test. And we can Ooh. see very dose-dependent and dose-related effects of both oral THC and smoked cannabis. There's an acute analgesic effect. Um, that, you know, people liken it to codeine. It's not fentanyl. You know, it's not It's not going to be the most robust pain relief. But there is there is something there. Okay. Now, the question we do not know the answer to, and nobody does, and we're actually going to be starting a study with this, is, does tolerance develop to that effect? So, what happens when you give, and the different different types of cannabis as well, different ratios of THC to CBD? What happens to the pain response when you're give? Because people are taking using cannabis multiple times every day. You yeah. Know, what happens? And then what happens when you stop abruptly? You know that this stuff we I feel like the public has no information on that, and obviously our society is so polarized. Either it's all good or it's all bad, and you know many are just hearing this. This, this is a magic drug, and it's going to cure whatever ails you. So we obviously need something reasonable, and we, we really desperately need data. Um, and, but cannabis as a Schedule One drug is brutally hard to study in clinical trials, so that's, that's another problem in terms of public health. We just don't have data. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think we have, I always go into the data thing. I think we have enough data today. We always need more data, of course. I mean, it's endless, right? It's infinite how much data and information. We're always a, a learning medical scientific community. I think we have enough data now for the harms. Um, I think the mistake we're making is telling everybody it's good for pain. Um, and having the experiment on society before it's anything is, um, you know, studied. I, I think we have greater public health harms, um, which we're seeing every day in the emergency department. Um, not saying that there's not, you know, potential benefits and different various, we know there are benefits. I mean, that's not arguable that there are benefits in the cannabinoid process, but I think, um, that there's a, a, a process for that to go through that you, you know, painstakingly do in your lab and you understand all the requirements in order to, to show something is safe and effective uh, right. before you know, telling the whole world, oh, yeah, this is good. Take some of this.
1: A hundred percent. And it's something I really try to communicate to people with any, you know, media I do is there's a billion dollar cannabis industry right now pushing and pushing this because it's a, it's an enormous money maker. But cannabis is the only drug that's escaped every other, uh, you know, what every other drug has had to go through to right. demonstrate efficacy, which is placebo control. So cannabis has escaped everything to become a medicine without, and I'm not saying there's not potential, but it's extremely distressing to me that it's accepted as a medicine. Yeah, you know, in the majority of states right now. And each state has its own indications, which, again, is is, right. is a little crazy.
0: Right, you know? right. Government is playing doctor. That really pisses yeah. me off.
1: And, and, <laughs> and exactly. Legislature. So New Jersey has different indications in New York. And I, li- I could cross the bridge and suddenly now it's going to work for headaches, where in New York it doesn't. So we would, we don't do that for antibiotics or, or antipsychotics. There We're you go. In. We're not voting in what's a medicine. So, so that's where it's funny because people think – it, it seems like the majority of people think oh it's great you know they they might wobble on whether it should be legalized for recreational use but they're very comfortable saying it should be legalized for medical use right i almost feel like that offends me more right
0: it does it offends me more. Just make it recreational and admit what you're doing, but don't... Exactly. Like, what's don't the point of going medicine. to medical school if you're going to, like, yes. just if do whatever you want? want. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so, so that's that's really offensive to me. And, and and because it works for your aunt, does not make it a medicine, you know, then it would just be whoever can pay for the m- most marketing to decide what's the next medicine then, if that's how we're going to determine what's a medicine from here on out. So so that's really wow. offensive to me. It, Unfortunately, as a scientist...
0: You go, Meg. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to vote what a medicine is. We have a process for
1: that. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and people forget how powerful the placebo effect is. When you expect something's going to work and mm. everybody's telling you it's going to work, there's so much neurobiology showing how powerful placebos are. They shut down the pain response. If you really think you're taking something yeah. effective for pain or anxiety or sleep, they work. We know that that's why we have randomized controlled trials to show that it has to be better than a placebo. So, but I get such resistance with, with that. When I talk to the lay public, they, they really resist the notion that, um, you know, the, the therapeutic effects may be a placebo effect when, oh my gosh, look at the placebo response to antidepressants, you know, it, it, the placebo response is profound and, um, some reason nobody wants to think that way about people
0: there. are very and, and it's it's interesting i don't know why but very specific to cannabis i mean people don't love their meth or cocaine or yeah. or even it's, their alcohol or their cigarettes as much as they yeah. absolutely uh love and defend their, their cannabis use so exactly
1: it's like a, a religion in a sense you know Yes. Talking about withdrawal and I was hissed at a, at a, at a conference once. Booed. (laughs) Aww. I was talking about cannabis withdrawal because I was saying something bad about their favorite drug. So that's. I agree with you completely. No, people who use cocaine and meth and alcohol, they know it's not good for them. Yeah. They, they they might not be able to stop, but they're not defending it. You know, right, right. Way.
0: But Meg, just realize I think when you're getting the hissing, I think you're getting it for a very small subset of the population. There there are there's a small subset of the population where cannabis is their religion. There's another small population of, uh, of the, where are like, I hate cannabis. I don't care. I don't care about cannabinoids and it's all evil, but yeah. most of the public are, are, are innocent um yeah. victims. I would say even because yeah. from the, and, and, and they do want to hear what you have to say.
1: Well, that's, that's nice to hear. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, no, I think, you know, the thing is people are really interested in cannabis um, you know, it's, it's something everyone's familiar with, but again, it's an old drug, but it's fairly new science. So I think that there is a genuine interest, uh, in cannabis and, yeah. um, that's why it's, it's,
0: do you, do you still think it's an old drug given the potency that, and it, that it's been genetically engineered and changed uh, as far as what's available compared to what's an NIDA
1: cigarette? Oh, I know. And I think, um, yeah, because honestly, you know, it's funny. I just went uh, the, part of this, uh, uh, this, this symposium I was participating in yesterday mm-hmm. from San Diego. You know, the, uh, NIH public, they, they, they test the potency of, of cannabis picked up by the police. And people would be surprised. There's some, yes, some is 20% THC. There's, there's a lot that's five to eight percent THC. So not everybody, it's all, right. it's all, you know, you have to pay for the, for the good stuff, but street marijuana can be quite, you know
0: quite, right uh, but but people say marijuana, but then if you really ask them and most doctors I don't think even bother asking because um, people call it weed or pot or cannabis whatever but it then you ask how do you do it and then you get the vapes and the shatters and the dabs and all that and it's like okay well, we're talking about another ad that's adult. a
1: different there, there I'm with you that's a different that's a different ball game because yeah. again what we have shown in the lab too and I know it's a well-known phenomenon but the stronger the cannabis people titrate very 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 well when they're smoking so if it's stronger they just don't pull as hard if it's weaker they pull very hard and everybody gets to where they want to go so if they're if it's strong they just don't inhale as much and and so when you actually look at plasma thc levels it doesn't even matter what potency the cigarette is right People are going to get to where they want to and, go. And I
0: saw those studies related, you know, with uh, driving impairment and stuff like that and smoked products, you know, right? So the, those data and those curves have been around. But I'm wondering if that's even applicable to vaping. Forget the shatters and the dapes. Yeah. Because no, you're getting such high potency right away. I don't...
1: I think titration is much, much harder there. Mm. And I don't know if it even can happen, particularly dabs or shatter. I mean, that's...
0: And the vapes and the vape cartridges?
1: Yeah, I know. No, I think that that's... That that is um that's a different right. scenario.
0: and yeah. I think the medical community again does not know that. Yeah, they yeah. they feel like all cannabis is created equal, and they don't realize that if you're vaping it versus using a joint, it's it's like comparing marijuana to methamphetamine. It's like a whole other story.
1: Yeah, yeah, there is yeah. The, so so the the question I don't know the answer to, and again I. <laughs> There is really regional differences because I have a colleague at UCLA and, and it's the dab dabbing is it's only common or normalized. And at least she's telling me that that it's 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 just uh, not uncommon. We're I'm not 100 percent certain that's the case in New York, but um, it, it is a different it's a different kind of worms. And again, as a cannabis researcher, I can't study that. So so we're very, very hampered. There's no product for me to study because the FDA has to approve anything I give to humans in a, in a scientific study. Right. There is no, there's, there's, there's no way for us to even conduct like basic pharmacology or behavioral studies with, with dads or shatter or with these really, really potent formulations. And that's a problem because we don't know. Does, does a use disorder kick in much more quickly when you're using it that way? You would predict yes, but we don't know the answer to that and we don't know what sort of tolerance develops, but, um, You know, it is uh, there's uh, I think
0: I mean, maybe that the research of like in the lab like that you can't do. But I'm sure there's plenty of research we could do if we wanted to, like, let's look at people who have a cannabis use disorder or cannabis induced psychosis. And how long have they had it? What products are you they using to get that diagnosis? I think there's a lot of research there that needs to happen.
1: That's 100 percent true. But, you know, the the shocking thing is and I don't know, think people realize that, is what you get in a dispensary is very, very uh, rarely accurately labeled. And there's, even though there's state regulations, those can be, they can be bought off and there's all sorts of data over and over and over again showing when you, when you really look at what they're selling in those dispensaries, they rarely contain what they say they're containing. So it's, um you know, it's not like buying, uh, I don't know, Oreo cookies where it's been standardized across the board no matter what. Or,
0: or even alcohol. People who love their marijuana say, oh, we want it to be like alcohol. But when you buy alcohol, there's a standard throughout yes. the entire world, and you know that you're not getting methanol and go blind from it. There is a universal standard for yeah. alcohol. We don't yeah. have that.
1: No. And, it's, it, you know, of course, it's very complicated with that plant that has 100 active cannabinoids and again this conference i just went to it's even the the terpes and flavonoids the other components of the plant that give it its smell and flavor that actually do have behavioral effects as well so there really is that plan is complicated again making the medicine issue even more more complicated because again as a doctor you know what dose what formulation what right. population at risk there's so much information you know when you're giving a medicine right uh, we don't know root of administration. We don't know what rubbing CBD on your arm is versus smoking it versus, you know, there's there's right. very little known. So I I always feel sorry for clinicians who have to give advice about therapeutic cannabis because I don't know what they're basing their data on. Well, th- that's
0: a point. So I don't think you can give therapeutic advice. And I'd say they're practicing quackery because you can't. Like, oh, well, use three cigarettes. I don't, I, how can you recommend something? But I think instead you should go to symptoms, like you're using this in order to do what? If recreational, okay, well, we know that we don't have a conversation. But if you're treating, using cannabis to treat your pain, are there other. FDA-better-approved medications? The most common I have is like a cancer patient. You have breast cancer patients. They say, you know what? I don't want to use those opioids. Isn't it a lot safer to me to use this plant? And I'll say, no. I'd rather have you take the opioids because you're immunocompromised. And this plant has known to have, 100% of the plant product has E. coli or aspergillus or Klebsiella or something else. I'd rather have you take something FDA-approved.
1: Well, I think that that's the other issue um, uh, that the public isn't aware of. And so, uh, you know, and again, Columbia, they, it wasn't, I had nothing to do with this research, but they just found all these heavy metals in um, mm. in, in, in apparently cannabis. Is an, an,
0: and in CBD and the, a bunch of the CBD products, they found that yeah. too.
1: So, you know, the NIDA cannabis does not have E. coli and all those other things. Right, yeah. right, right. When I talked
0: to Dr. El Soli, who sells those things, the amount I asked him, is there any dispensary anywhere in the world that goes through the rigors you do to have a oh. sterile product? And I don't think anyone does.
1: No, no. So yeah, whatever they say about it, at least I know it's 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 uh not gonna make but but again, I again I had a colleague with breast cancer. She there is some evidence about neuropathic pain and C B D, but she, there's no product she felt safe taking, even though she wanted to just see. Right. Because she was immune compromised, right. so it is. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an extreme. And the other thing I get on my high horse about is pregnancy, because every dispensary, <laughs> if you call and say I'm pregnant and nauseated, they'll they'll come, come on in. I'll give you the right cannabis product. Well, that's an enormous time of brain development, as is adolescence, and it's not a good time to be interfering with the endocannabinoid system, which plays a role in brain development, and to then. To recommend that for pregnant women, I think, is, is absolutely...
0: I, I, I'm disappointed in my own medical community that has allowed an entire industry to play doctor.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a hard thing to fight against, though, because it's a... Yeah. See, 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 the public the public is very pro-cannabis. I mean, I think the, the vast majority are in favor of legalization for recreational use. So politicians are going by that, but... Um, and there's no political will to fight it.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to fight that. I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not against legalization. I'm, I've, I've, I live in California. Yes. It's It's here. It's here to fight. stay. I, I don't, I'm not, I have no, yeah. you know, I'm not fighting that. But, but you shouldn't be lying to the public. People should know the risks, understand the risks and make a decision. Just like we're not going to get rid of alcohol. We're not going to get rid of tobacco. People know the risks and the risks of cannabis is being hidden. And not only that, it's being promoted for all these medical things without the science.
1: No, I agree. I, I just don't think, we're definitely not having an honest discussion in our society about mm. cannabis at all. And, and you know...
0: I like that honest discussion.
1: We're really not. We're not talking, of course, there's risks and benefits. Let's just have a conversation about that. But, you know, in part... The problem is, I think, with cannabis, and the reasons it's so polarizing is because it was demonized for so long. So it was all bad, all horrible. You go to jail, all of that. So now there is, I think, this this pendulum swing that's also
0: a little too far.
1: Not good. Not good. Yeah. So um, that's right. At,
0: at a heavy, heavy, heavy price. And let me um, propose to you a question from Matthew. Uh, Matthew is one of many people. The saddest podcast I ever did was parents who have children who have died from cannabis. But Matthew has, um, and his wife have a son that has cannabis induced psychosis, cannabis use disorder, eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, parents are convinced that if it wasn't for the high potency products and vapes, their son wouldn't have this disease. But now, you know, he has this now dual diagnosis of cannabis use disorder and mental health disorder. They really want to know, and I know that you're a scientist, not a clinician, but they want to know is, you know, uh, what are potential treatments? What are the the hopes for people out there who are suffering?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm going to say off the bat, I'm not going to be terribly useful on this front, but, um, uh, you know, there is certainly an association. I, I am a, cautious scientists, so it's it's still hard for me to say causal, but there is certainly association between cannabis and um certainly psychosis. I don't know about bipolar I haven't heard that but and and I know you and the e r have seen uh you know cannabis related psychosis that I believe remits now does that mean it it it's gone for good or that it won't come back i I just don't know I don't know that data well enough to comment on that yeah. but i am terribly sorry to hear that that sounds that sounds really distressing i can say that there you know there is treatment for cannabis use disorder if this if this um if their son is open to that 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 could be the first step to to the treatment but yeah i i i don't have good a good knowledge base on this
0: well i think that gives hope if treatment for cannabis use disorder is kind of like if you have you know emphysema if you continue to smoke your emphysema will just get worse but if we could right. treat your nicotine use disorder you know, right. then we could also, you know, maybe you'll be on inhalers forever for your lung problem, but maybe right. not. So I think, um, there should always be hope, um, yes. for, yeah. for your yeah. son. I, yeah. I, I do think that if we catch kids early, there's more of a chance of it, things being reversible. And I think mm-hmm. that that's a missed opportunity also with the medical community. If people come in, to the hospital with psychosis, we're so afraid to tell them that it's because of their cannabis, and then really, and then well, it could be something else, and maybe genetic, and I don't want to have a confrontation. Um, but then we're missing an opportunity because it, then they don't know that that's what happened to them and why it happened to them. They'll just keep doing it, and then right. and then and, it could and, become permanent.
1: And it's certainly not helpful. <laughs> it's very clear; it's not going to help. Your cannabis use is not going to help. Yeah. With that
0: yeah yeah one one large study, like almost seven million people in Denmark, showed that if we could target just men between the ages twenty one to thirty if we just had that one target and 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 prevented cannabis use disorder in that sub segment of the population, we would have thirty percent less schizophrenia so but you're doing other amazing things that I think brings hope to um to Matthew's son and to many others. And that's the research that you're doing in um, what I found you on this new drug called AEF 0117. Can you, yes. what is that?
1: Oh, it's, 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 this is a really exciting, this is a really exciting uh, story for, for us. Um, I had a colleague, I did my postdoc in, in Bordeaux, France, and my colleague there, had made this discovery that uh, it in in rats, high levels of THC increases the production of a steroid hormone, pregnenolone. It's just a, a hormone we have in our in our body, and at this pregnenolone binds to a pocket of the cannabinoid receptor. So it's THC binds to a protein in the brain, a cannabinoid receptor, and that's how it produces all of its effects. Well, pregnenolone, this hormone binds to this pocket of the receptor and can turn off certain of THC's effects including a lot of its its rewarding effects and its other uh, other behavioral effects without producing all the side effects that occur if you completely block that CB1 receptor so you might remember the story of Rimonabant many years ago this was a, a an antagonist of the CB1 receptor it blocked that receptor kind of shut down the whole endogenous cannabinoid system and produced Really terrible side effects. It was being t- looked for for a treatment of obesity, also tobacco cigarette smoking. It looked to be working for many things. But if you maintain people on, they get
0: antibiotic. like depressed and suicidal. Yes. yes.
1: So yeah. drug companies dropped it like a hot potato, ran away, and didn't go near it again. So they by just by chance really made this discovery that pregnenolone can can really turn off a lot of again a lot of the rewarding effects of, of THC without producing any of those mood effects. So they developed. A non-metabolizable version of this called AEF0117 because pregnant alone alone is a precursor to many other hormones. If you give people pregnant alone, you're going to get other hormones and many other, other issues. So they, they, they developed this medication, AEF0117. We moved it into humans and found that it was extremely safe. Then we could move it into our residential laboratory and give it to people as they were smoking a good amount of cannabis throughout the day and really track what does it do when you combine it with cannabis? And we saw this attenuation in um, you know, how how good they felt, how much they liked the cannabis, and they actually self-administered less. So they chose when they were on the active medication, these non-treatment seeking heavy smokers opted to save their money and they didn't feel it was worth it to, to buy the cannabis because the cannabis wasn't making them feel the way they 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 like to feel. So that's that was a really promising um uh, set of findings for us, and, it, and it was dose related. And so with that, it has now moved to a very large multi site clinical trial, again, run by my colleague Francis Levin, with uh, 330 people testing a range of doses in people treating, seeking treatment for their cannabis use. And, and again, unlike this relapse model I had where you have to get people abstinent first to then see your effects of medication, here we just give it to people as they're smoking on ongoing use and seeing if we can get it down, if we can actually Mm. reduce. And that's kind of, again, what many patients are asking for to begin with. So it seems it's really a a fascinating... uh,
0: And and it works by inhibiting only a segment of the CB1 receptor, not the whole receptor?
1: Exactly. So when the THC binds, I don't know how biological you want to get, but when THC binds, it sets off these um, intracellular signaling pathways. So THC binds and you get changes... Uh, you know, signaling changes from from that receptor, and this pregnenolone analog just shuts down one of those pathways and lets the rest of them go. So that way, your endogenous cannabinoids can do what they normally do, affecting your mood and and appetite and all sorts of other things. But then, when you smoke cannabis, that's getting shut down. It seems to be specific. So far, it seems to be specific to that. So we're really seeing a direct attenuation of. The positive effects of cannabis. So again, you think of a treatment treatment seeker. It's it's you know a treatment seeker trying to cut down. They relapse, go back to smoking, and if it doesn't feel quite the same, it might get them back on track again.
0: Now you talk about positive and negative effects of cannabis. Can you explain what that means?
1: So like the positive reinforcing effects for us is uh, working, uh, choosing to take. Take the drug. Um, the negative reinforcing effects is if when you choose to take the drug, cause you're going through withdrawal. So you're trying, you're using the drug to take away something. So these are just kind of behavioral pharmacology terms. But you know, what I am looking at, I'm looking at people's choice to use cannabis for different reasons. Some it's just to get high right then and there to get high. Mm-hmm. There's other times they're going to be using to take away something, take away their anxiety, take away their withdrawal. They're going to be using it for there. And, when
0: or to treat, at, or to treat because they're addicted, to treat withdrawal just to, tr- just to feel normal, just to feel. Exactly,
1: exactly. And um, so when you're looking at for a medication, you're, you might target different aspects of, of drug taking. And so that's, that's what we've been doing in the lab, looking at all these different medications. A lot of our studies were looking to reduce withdrawal, but this study is really to reduce the actual high, the positive subjective effects you get when you smoke cannabis. And if we can change that or reduce it, and we think that that could be helpful clinically because there is no medication to help people with cannabis use disorder yet we know again it's it's out there and there is there isn't really an, an effective medication there's some behavioral approaches that help but there's no effective medication yet so you want to have that option to help people kind of get control again
0: yeah um you you research also focuses on medications on cannabis is that what you mean by this this new drug the ave <laughs> AEF0117. Um, yeah. When is that going to get a real name?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we're hoping this multi-site trial works and, you know, it is moving along the FDA pathway. So then I'm sure that's that's when they're go- we're going to get a name.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, interesting. And is it being, is that medication um, bought by a big pharmaceutical company? Who's doing, is that something that you're
1: so I'm not involved with the money part. <laughs> um, the uh, yes, there is a, a large uh they don't they don't have the rights to it now. It's my understanding. So Alice Pharma is the one that developed it. But I think um, Indivior is a is a big, big pharma company that has expressed significant interest and has a relationship with Alice Pharma. So interesting. Um, I think that they are. There is because they know that there's a market. There is a market out there for this.
0: I, I do wonder if it would work for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome.
1: I know it's uh, very interesting, and also for the psychosis angle.
0: And too. for the psychosis, right? If,
1: if, if it could help with acute uh, cannabis-related psychosis, there's a lot of questions um, we don't know. I would like to study it to see if you can get the analgesic effects from cannabis without the intoxication, too, because it could be because it does allow for certain effects to occur. So. You know that that could be of interest too. So there's there's really a lot more to do with this, but the first step is just to see is it going to help people who are using. So
0: you you mentioned that the analgesics effect. It seems more like you know again pushing cannabis for pain, the plant, the smoked products with all the you know you know hundred different cannabinoids, you know versus just the good old fashioned opioids that don't have those contaminants and other side effects. Um well,
1: the reality is people are using it for pain, so you know for and I don't like you said, I don't think that one's gonna go back in the barn either so um uh from our perspective i i I really wanna address in my very limited way kind of these public health questions so mm-hmm. um and you know people who are not immune compromised are using cannabis um for a variety of reasons, and so I just, what I try to say to the public is, let's find what it might help with, and what it doesn't do anything for, and again, I do think anxiety and depression are two things that it's, in the long term, it's certainly not going to, there's not much to suggest it's going to help with those things, and, and that's, the public needs to know that. That's, yeah, you
0: know, I right think right our so. psychiatrists need to know that, because I'm hearing more and more parents, tragically, who've had their, been told by therapists that their kids should use cannabis for their mental health issues really yeah
1: i've heard that wow that's uh that's a little bit alarming yeah
0: (laughs) that's right when we let the public just play doctor on this it's like you know and um and uh, and and there's no oversight for that so
1: yeah no and it's the fda it's a it's um you know, again, we have to do things so, so,
0: so carefully. Right, Buy the um, book and and cool. prove behind without yeah, and, a shadow and, of a doubt.
1: Yeah, and and boy, get FDA approval for every little step of the process. Which again, I I don't argue against because I'm giving people a drug, so they should be they should be careful and not let me just go to a dispensary and buy because Lord knows what I get. So I get it. I understand why they have to be so rigorous, but. It would be great to communicate that to the people selling (laughs) this and and CBD and so many things with with very little regulation. You know, I think it's whack-a-mole for them. There's just, it's a constant battle, but the the public really needs more information on this and the risks, just the risks. Yeah. yeah.
0: I'm with you on that. Um, Congratulations again. Dr. Margaret Haney for your um, for your research, your award. Uh, very enlightening conversation. I feel like I, could, I, I just need to, I have even more questions and <laughs> there's, there's so much to learn. <laughs> uh, this is I really feel like what happens when a scientist and clinicians get together. You just made me a better doctor by being able to you know, being able to say you know, this is it, with more, even more confidence um, yeah. that, that this is what you see when I talk to patients. Um, so I thank you for that. Um, yeah. And I uh, want to say thank you to, um, to Matthew. Uh, may your son have recovery and your family have peace. I know it's, it's, it's not easy to have your loved one with a mental health and oh, a substance yeah. use disorder, and together, it's very challenging. And uh, thank you to you you, and uh, much more success in, in your research.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks so much. This was really fun.
0: Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where you learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac. The International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaac1.org. That's I A S I C 1.org. High Truths producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more. High Truths.